The gospel lesson for this first Sunday in Advent comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Uh, And this is on page, I guess I don't have it, of the Pew Bible. Your bulletin says what page it's on. Anyways, in this gospel lesson, Jesus, uh, he delights his disciples, but he also hints at something that they might not like so much. And please stand as you are able for the gospel from Luke 19, beginning at verse 28. We read in Jesus' name. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage at, and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these, were, <clears throat> if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear saints, your God and King comes to you. Think about that and marvel at that. Your God and King comes to you. This is what the word Advent means. It's just a fancy Latin word that means coming. Our God, the King of peace and glory, comes down to us. During the season of Advent, we consider the threefold coming of Jesus Christ. There are really three Advents of Jesus Christ. The easiest way for us to remember them is as past, present, and future. And I guess this only works for the era that we're living in now. In Old Testament times, all three Advents of Jesus were in the future. And in the new creation, all three Advents will be in the past. But during the time that we live in right now, we can remember them as past, present, and future. The past advent of Jesus is Christmas. During Advent, we remember the incarnation, that is the enfleshment of the Son of God as the man Jesus of Nazareth. Our God and King came to earth in the form of a humble infant. This is Jesus' past. Advent. The present 
advent of Jesus is in his word and sacraments. We receive Jesus here and now through these means that he has instituted. The risen Lord Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, but that does not mean that he is distant from us. In fact, he is as near as he ever has been. He comes near to us, and he even takes up residence within us through his word and sacraments. This is especially noticeable in the sacrament of the altar, the Lord's Supper. And we Lutherans were kind of weird sometimes among our Protestant friends because we believe that Jesus was really, truly serious when he said, this is my body and this is my blood. According to Jesus' own words, the bread and wine do not represent his body and blood, but they are his body and blood. So we'll erase any idea of symbolism from our minds. Scripture never speaks of the Lord's Supper as a symbol. It always speaks of it as actually being the body and blood of Jesus. And this is marvelous. So, so consider this at the altar today, that your God and King comes to you in these forms of bread and wine. And he comes to you not merely spiritually, but also physically. And this is the same kind of miracle that occurred when the Son of God became human in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The infinite and almighty God assumes the form of something simple and small and humble. Your God and King comes to you even today. And then the future advent of Jesus is his glorious return on the last day in which he will raise the dead and judge all mankind. As Christians, this is our blessed hope. Our hope and our glory, our reason for being Christians, is not really in this life. It is in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And sure, we have blessings in Jesus Christ now. Most significantly, we have peace with God, knowing that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. And furthermore, we have fellowship with God and with all his saints, and we rejoice in these things. But we will also encounter various hardships in this life. Being a Christian might actually cause extra suffering in our lives. So we fix our eyes on the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ and the life to come. We look forward to the future advent of Jesus Christ. Our God and King will come again. This theme of Advent is one of the characteristics of Christianity that distinguishes it from every other religion of the world. It's often been observed, and I think this is accurate, that there are really only two religions in the whole world. There is the religion where God comes down to man, that's Christianity, and there is the religion where man tries to ascend up to God, that's every other form of religion in the world, including atheism and secular humanism. Now, it might sound kind of strange to categorize something like atheism or humanism as a religion. They obviously don't believe in a divine being, but they do have gods in the sense that they fear, love, and trust in something. In something uh, that they fear, love, and trust in above everything else. 
And with every other false religion in the world, they seek to reach this God through human effort. Every person in the world is really religious, even those who call themselves atheists or those who say, I'm spiritual but not religious. Every person is religious in the sense that we all value a certain person or thing above all others, and we trust that person or thing uh, to save us. The only question is who or what our God is and can our God actually save us. Every other religion of the world seeks to reach its God by some sort of human effort. Sometimes it's moralism. That is, we try to reach up to our God by being good and moral. A lot of Western religions like Islam or Mormonism focus on this. Or sometimes it's mysticism. That's when we try to reach up to our God through some kind of uh, spiritual experience like transcendental meditation or something like that. And this is really common among Eastern religions like Buddhism or Hinduism. And other times we try to reach up to our God through rationalism, that is through our minds. And this is common in the secular or atheist religions. Uh, The idea is kind of like if we can get Uh, everyone else in the world to think like us, then we can create some kind of utopia or a heaven on earth. Most organized religions, whether they're Western or Eastern, really combine all three of these things, moralism, mysticism, and rationalism. And of course, every other religion of the world has a slightly different idea of their God or their approach to him, but they all have this in common. They have to reach up to him. Moralism, mysticism, and rationalism are all ladders to ascend up to God. But Christianity is radically different. Our God comes down to us. And I don't think any human being in the world would ever think of this. It's just not our nature. And that's why Christianity is so unique. Natural religion seeks to climb up to its God or to reach up and pull him down. But supernatural religion is where God comes down. Everything is reversed. So think about this and marvel at this during the season of Advent. Our God comes down to us. Instead of us seeking and finding him, he seeks and finds us. After all, God is not the one who's lost. We are. Our God and King comes down to us. This might sound like a a frightful thing to suddenly be in the presence of God. You remember in those old westerns where, where some cowboy says, prepare to meet your maker. That's not a word of comfort. And when the prophet Amos says, prepare to meet your God, that is not a word of gospel. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But before we cower in fear, or before we turn tail and run away, because there really is no way to escape from God, we should take a peek and see how he comes to us. Does he come to us in condemnation, or does he come with salvation? The gospel lesson of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem reveals the nature of his coming. He rides into Jerusalem 
on a small donkey while the multitude of his disciples proclaim his praises. There's something joyful and exciting about this. Whenever Jesus comes, it is always appropriate for God's people to rejoice. With each of the three advents I mentioned earlier, there is great joy. And in this scene of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. And when the text talks about the whole multitude of his disciples, this is way more than just the twelve. The term disciple often includes many more people. The whole crowd probably included several hundred or, or maybe even thousands of people. Some of these had joined Jesus' train as he traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. Others were already in Jerusalem waiting for him to arrive. The, uh, the owners of the cult were probably among those who were waiting for Jesus to come to Jerusalem. And then when these disciples in Jerusalem hear that Jesus is drawing near, they go out to meet him. So there's really a large crowd, and they're all rejoicing and praising God. Everyone except for the Pharisees, who, who don't seem to think that Jesus should let the disciples make such a big deal of him. Perhaps they don't think any human is worthy of such praise. Or, perhaps more likely, they're afraid the Romans will take notice and consider this to be some kind of uprising. So they tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples, but Jesus says, if these were, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The idea is that this praise is justified, even necessary, for such an occasion. It fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah that Zion should rejoice. Jesus, the king of peace and glory, is coming now to the city that has been sanctified for his sacrifice. So it really is an occasion for rejoicing. But there's something odd about it as well. There is a strange, perhaps even comical humility about it. Because Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a little donkey colt. It's not the typical way for a king to enter a city, right? You'd expect a glorious king to ride in on a majestic war horse. An elephant would work too. Even a mule or an ox, something bigger, would be better than a donkey. But Jesus specifically asks for a donkey, and not a full-size donkey either, he wants a little one on which no one has ever sat. Part of the reason for this is that it fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah, which we heard at the start of the service. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. So Jesus fulfills prophecy, and he knows he's doing this. He specifically does this to fulfill the prophecy. But there's more to it than just that. The prophecy was made this way for a reason. It was made this way because it reveals the humble character of Jesus. Jesus truly is humble. And when we say that he's humble, we don't just mean that he acts lowlier than he rightly deserves. 
It's not like the kind of polite humility we see when someone who is really quite awesome talks themselves down. Uh, you've seen this if you ever watch a post-game interview. When they interview the star of the game and he says, it was really a team effort. That's the kind of humility that we like to see in our heroes. But Jesus' humility is quite different. The humility Jesus demonstrates goes far beyond words. Jesus' humility means that he actually considers others more significant than himself. And his actions demonstrate this. He doesn't talk himself down like the heroes we like. He actually talks himself up. If you got to interview Jesus at the end of the game, he would come right out and tell you how awesome he is and how he did it all. He does it over and over again, really, in the gospel lessons. He claims to be God in human flesh. He says that if these disciples weren't shouting his praises, the stones would start crying out. That's big talk. But Jesus demonstrates his humility by his actions, especially when he takes my place and your place on the cursed tree. So the donkey is quite appropriate for him when we consider what he is going to Jerusalem to do. He's not going there to overthrow the tyrannical Roman occupation. He is going there to die for the sins of the world. Jesus is going there to stand in our place, really hang in our place, and make peace with God in heaven. This is what the crowd proclaims about Jesus. And I find this really interesting. All four of the gospel records, uh, they record this event of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, but they all record it slightly differently. Now, when I say that they're different, I don't mean that they can't get their stories straight. They're all true, but they each record different little parts of it. And this is exactly what we should expect from real historical narratives. None of them record every single word that was spoken by every person in attendance. So they all have the multitude saying something a little bit different. Luke is the only one who records them proclaiming peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And this is one of Luke's unique contributions. And I guess we already hear, heard a little bit about this already, so my thunder got stolen. It reminds us of that scene earlier in Luke where a multitude of angels proclaimed Jesus' birth to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And it's no coincidence that both of these are in the Gospel of Luke. I'm convinced that Luke does this on purpose. But there's a little bit of a difference between what the angels say at his birth and what the multitude of disciples say at his entrance into Jerusalem. Both proclaim glory in the highest, right? And both proclaim peace, but there's a subtle difference. At his birth, the angels proclaim peace on earth. At the triumphal entry, it's peace in heaven. At Christmas, the emphasis is peace on earth because God came down to earth and he did it peacefully. But he goes to the cross now to make peace in heaven. Christmas isn't complete without Good Friday and Easter. 
For God to come down and not offer himself as a sacrifice would do absolutely nothing for us and for our salvation. He must also make peace in heaven. And he does this by the blood of his cross. He comes with salvation because he goes to the cross. And this is his glory. Dear saints, the king of peace and glory comes to you. He comes now with the salvation he earned for you by his death and resurrection. He has made peace in heaven between God the Father and you. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh,